Yo, you thought you knew about this motherfucker right here? Yeah, you don't know shit because we about to take this motherfucker over. Bitch, motherfucker, yo, we riding with body. 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 Fuck you, Donald Trump. You a chump. Gonna kick out your legs, make you go bump. Shit on your face and share it too. Who give a fuck about a fucker and a That's my song. I wrote this shit. Because I've never been more excited in the last four years than I am now. If you voted for Donald Trump, dude, I'm sorry, but I am motherfucking riding with old ass Joe Biden. Yes, this is the LCD sound system episode, but I am glowing. And I know a lot of you out there are too. Congratulations. We can rest. You know, Donald Trump wanted to cancel the 500. He said, he said Rolling Stone should be doing it. But I was like, no. And we fought him. I'm excited. What's up, everybody? Yes, this is the LCD Sound System episode. We're talking about their 2007 sophomore album, Sound of Silver. It's also number 395 out of 500 on the 500 with me. What's up, everybody? Fleece Army. Attention, Eddie's soldiers. Big week for everybody, man. Usually I start off the podcast with a song from the record. Dude, this is a great record. Wasn't trying to disrespect it by not playing that opening track. I just wrote that song. It's catchy. We're going to make a music video for it, but I wanted to give y'all the sneaky peeky. Also, I want to hook you guys up with the greatest thing going on Saturday, November 14th, my 41st birthday. Yes, I know I'm only 41, and I look like I'm 70. I look older than Joe Biden. The goddamn Comedy Jam is back. It is completely virtual. You are involved in it. I get to see you. You get to hear us. We get to talk to one another. I get to see into your home. And you get to see some of your favorite comedians do stand-up, then tell a story about why they chose the song they're going to sing, and then sing it with a live band. And this month, for my party, we've got a great show. Eric Griffin, the Sklar Brothers, Justin Martindale, and one of my best friends, Justine the Machine Marino. And we have some special guests. And if you know me, then you know who's going to be showing up. It's going to be awesome I am super excited, guys. Please, if you are in the Fleece Army, I want to see you there. $30, and I get to see you and talk to you and everything. $15, you get to join the show. Pay the $30. Come to my birthday party, man. It's been a shit year, and now we're starting to get some hope with Biden and Trump being gone. So, uh, listen, come celebrate with me. I love you guys. Tickets are at joshadammyers.com under shows, or you can go to our website, the500podcast.com to book your spot for this Saturday night. Be there or be pubic hair. Now, don't forget, we have the podcast theme song contest. And dude, people are sending in their submissions and some of them are fucking incredible. If you're in the Patreon, you get to vote on who the winner is and the grand prize gets a one-year subscription to the 500 Club with all the videos, all the merch from Young and Sick, all the extra content that we cut out of each episode because we want you. We know you're musicians. We know that you can make music. If you listen to this show, you can 100% make a song. So send us your songs to 
500podcast at gmail.com. Make your 500podcast theme song, and we will play it to open every show. And guys, join our Patreon. You heard all the stuff that you get. Join the Patreon. Help us pay for our 42 employees. I love each and every one of them. Big shout out to Pete. Big shout out to Melissa, Emily, Hannah, Morty. You know I love you. Jeremiah. I don't know what he does, but he does something. He's there, and he's good. I love him. Oh, and Adam. We haven't seen Adam in a minute, but I miss him. So go to our website for all the Patreon. You know, that's what we do, people. All right, let's get to this record because man, oh, man, oh, Shevitz, I've seen a lot of you talking about this on the Soch. Released on March 12th of 2007 on DFA Capital and EMI Records and produced by the DFA, this is the second album by Brooklyn Dance Outfit, LCD Sound System. So let's tell you a little bit of story about who this guy James Murphy is because he is LCD Sound System. He's a New Jersey native a multi-instrumentalist, singer-songwriter. He was a DJ, a producer, an engineer, and he began playing in punk bands straight out of high school. Then he drops out of NYU as an English major, and he continues playing around while also engineering and producing in New York. He's also DJing under the militaristic name Death From Above. He soon became the live sound engineer for post-hardcore synthesizer group Six Finger Satellite. While with them, he also gave his signature powerfully loud speaker setup the nickname Death From Above. But after 9-11, he changed it to the acronym DFA. While working on fellow DJ Dave Holmes' record, Murphy met British recording artist and producer Tim Goldsworthy, formerly of the trip-hop band Uncle. I fucking love Uncle. If you've never listened to him, Rabbit in the Headlights, or the song they did with with the dude from uh, The Verb, Richard Ashcroft. Around that time, Murphy tried ecstasy. Oh, wow. And the experience opened him up to the enjoyment of uninhibited dancing to whatever music moved him. Murphy and Goldsworthy began DJing their unique mix of dance music together, throwing parties around the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Then, Murphy and Goldsworthy became a production team called you guessed it, the DFA. And with manager Jonathan Galkin, they founded their record label and called it, guess what, DFA. They found some success producing and releasing music by bands like Hot Chip and The Rapture by helping them construct a hybrid of punk and house music. However, after The Rapture's DFA-produced debut got successful, they left for a major label deal, which made Murphy feel betrayed. At about the same time, his parents died and he inherited a bunch of money. Much like my uh, uncle uh, Benny hooked me up with 40 grand, bought a lot of fleece, hence why you're called the Fleece Army. So in 2001, feeling driven by his resentments and with nothing to lose, Murphy formed LCD Sound System around himself on most instruments with help from vocalist keyboardist Nancy Wang and some other musicians. Murphy's inspirations included Bowie, Eno, Velvet Underground, yes, also newer shit like Daft Punk, early kraut work like Can, 80s New York New Wave, like Liquid Liquid, 70s New Wave, like Talking Heads and the B-52s, and then the post-punk shit like The Fall and Sushi and the Banshees, all sorts of shit, man. The DFA produced LCD Sound System's first critically acclaimed dance punk 12-inch single, 2002's extemporaneous, bitingly humorous, hipster-than-thou anthem, Losing My Edge, that rebelled against the younger DJs who were biting Murphy's deeply diverse musical taste. He wrote it when he was 32 and already feeling like a relic in his scene. 
This insight into finding and reconsidering his place in the world informs much of the band's material. Now, James had originally done Losing My Edge as sort of a novelty song and hadn't intended to be a lead singer or even expected for the band to become so popular. He had sung and played guitar when he was younger, but he wasn't as into it and preferred to write, play drums, and produce. His discomfort at recording his lead vocals and then singing drove him into a heavy blackout whiskey drinking phase. The band added drummer Patrick Mahoney, guitarist Tyler Pope from electronic band Chick Chick Chick, and several more contributing musicians and released a few more singles and then their debut record. They built more underground and mainstream popularity with critical acclaim and started appearing on worldwide dance charts. In 2006, after creating the Nike Commission digitally released long-form song 4533 as a soundtrack to a jogging workout, Murphy was ready for the second album. Like their debut, they recorded this follow-up at Longview Farm Studios in North Brookfield, Massachusetts. Feeling that the farm made the first album sound too woody, and to infuse this album's sessions with the 70s glam rock vibe he was going for, Murphy covered the studio with silver fabric and aluminum foil. Sounds like something I used to do when I did coke. Building on the self-awareness and tongue-in-cheek electro-dance punk of their first record, the new songs would be even more personal, wistful, nostalgic, nostalgic, what the fuck is that? Witty and thoughtful. There was also a lot of loss and regret Murphy carried going into recording to the point where he admitted feeling suicidal for the first half. And that realness struck a chord because Sound of Silver and several of its singles were at the top or near the top of every best of list for that year and later for the whole decade. They earned a Grammy nomination for Best Electronic Dance Album. Murphy would lead the band through one more record before breaking them up after a marathon four-hour concert at Madison Square Garden. And you can watch that in the movie called Shut Up and Play the Hits. The band took some time off. Murphy went on to produce Arcade Fire's record, started getting into scoring movies, also worked with David Bowie on his final record, Black Star. And then the band decided to come back where they announced they'd be headlining Coachella in 2016 and putting out a new album. They headlined a bunch of festivals, which we're going to talk about because I was on two of those bills and they were fucking incredible. However, Sound of Silver is still considered LCD Sound System's best and most critically beloved record. And today, I have an incredibly beloved guest, the Australian Stallion. One of the smartest men in comedy and one of the coolest dudes I know, Will Anderson. If you don't know Will, Will is one of Australia's biggest comedians. I've seen him year after year at the Just for Last Festival, and he blows me away every time. Also, he's the host of so many podcasts, but one of them in particular, Tofop. It's one of Australia's longest-running podcasts, hosted by Will Anderson and Charlie Clausman. Get into it. And this episode, like I say all the time, when I get that perfect guest, is why we do the podcast. Because there is nothing better than when you have someone that has real deep connection to the record we're breaking down. And uh, he was in Australia, I was in America. Thank God for the internet, because we got to bring this shit to all of y'all. Raid review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms. And if you're listening on Apple, do me a favor, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. I want to see those reviews. If I could see five new reviews in the next day, I'm buying a fleece for somebody. 
Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Also, go to my website, joshadammyers.com, where you can find all my shows, all my shit that's going on, videos. It's great. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam, run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, y'all, nothing left to say, but here we go. So here we go. So here we go with 395 with Sound of Silver by LCD. Sound motherfucking system. You know, it's funny, uh, before I ask you the initial question of the podcast is, uh, I don't know why, but I feel so connected to Australia. So maybe like a couple weeks ago, I took mushrooms with Jim Jeffries and he's got this cabinet full of like sweets and stuff like that. And I, we were, we're tripping balls and I'm like, I'm like, do you have any like Australian food? And he was like, oh my God, dude, he gave me the full gambit (laughs) Vegemite on a bagel with butter, which was very thick, but high in B vitamins. He gave me burger rings. Do you know burger rings? Yeah, of course. Okay, chicken salt. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think it's called Violet Crumble. Do you know about Violet Crumble? Yeah. Do you know about Violet Crumble? It's like a crunchy bar, but I got some in my cabinet right now. <laughs> Dude, I got I got Violet Crumble in my cabinet. Um, and then we watched we watched hours of Kath and Kim. The full and then we listened to Silver Chair. Midnight Oil. We listen to Silver Chair, Midnight Oil, Natalie and Bruglia, and then the Stone Roses because they just make their way into everything. So, all right. So, so I wanted you on this for a while. I've been a fan of yours for a while. Um, do me a favor. Tell me your journey with LCD Sound System. Okay. Well, here's what I love about LCD Sound System is I think that I guess they're like a a dance act you know james murphy came out of like dance music but i was never necessarily a huge dance music fan like my my tastes were more like rock music guitar music you know definitely like that big alternative 90s thing but then like had become much more into sort of that british you know radiohead and bands like that that i know that you enjoy and i don't think that i was you know, really on the radar of a lot of what I would call traditional sort of like dance music, stuff that was like dance music albums. The idea of going home and putting on an entire dance music album was something that was incredibly foreign to me. And so I think this was one of the first ever, there was an Australian band called The Avalanches who made this incredible like, you know, album, which I guess was dance music that I'd really loved. And I, yeah, I kind of dipped in on Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim and some of that stuff, but not like, you know, proper sort of smart dance music. And then LCD Sound System came along and I, there was just something about them. I guess it was because they had a bit of a, a rock, you know, crossover, like a rock pop, alt pop, you know, punky, but it was kind of felt like a real mixture of stuff that I liked, like, there was some real punky stuff, but there was some real sort of poppy stuff. And like, there was like, you know, artists that I like, like Ben Lee and people like that, who kind of were making pop music as well. And then suddenly LCD had like so many of those elements all combined, but in a way that really worked to me. And I didn't know at the time that James Murphy was kind of this massive control freak when I first heard it. But later on when I found out that, you know, 
even in the collaborative process, he often just gets all the musicians to play their music and then he just takes it away and sort of redoes it and remakes it and, you know, kind of puts it all together. It, it, it just felt like that in my head. I got that without knowing that that was the case, you know. That was coming through to me. I trust this dude because this dude knows what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing, right? I don't understand yet what it is that I like about this. But one of the things I like about this is the dude in charge of making this seems to know what he's doing. Yeah, there is a level of yeah, there is a level of like comfort in 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 every song starts and and from the two albums that they release, every song you're just like I feel like I'm in good hands here. I feel like this guy knows what he's doing. He has a sound. He's it's a cacophony of sound. Even um, that's a big word that I just recently learned from this podcast. But yeah, dude, it's like I, there's something that I trust that there'll be a beginning, a middle, an end, maybe some cowbell. <laughs> you know, he'll talk about being older, but there's there's a vibe to it so so well it has that you know what can i say this what it felt like to me and you'll get this like from the world of like stand-up comedy there's sometimes when you see a comedian and they walk on stage and just like half a second in you're like ah this guy's got this i don't necessarily know where it's going or what it's going to be about but i get that this person knows what they're doing and then he does 15 minutes on denying the Holocaust ever right. happened. You're like, Jesus You're like, Christ. Well, I'm in good like, hands. He's comfortable he's, and confident. Look how confident he is. He's making some <laughs> compelling points. It's got an unusual twist I haven't seen in the end. I, I don't, look, you know, this is not hacky. That's what it felt like to me. But the first album, I didn't necessarily, I don't think I ever would have owned the first album before we got to this one. Like, I think this was, you know, Sounds of Silver was probably my big, you know, jump into the idea of I'm going to have this album, I'm going to play this album, I'm going to, you know, learn something about this band. You know, when you get to that point with some music where you're like, ah, man, if I'm telling people that I like this, I probably should know a few things about it and you have to go away and do some research and actually... There's definitely snobbery around some bands for sure. So did you get into this in like 2007 when it came out? Yeah, so, so 2007 would have first heard this and I really would have consolidated it in 2009 or 10. I went to a, an Australian music festival called uh, Splendor in the Grass. Australia used to be famous for its amazing music festivals. There was a festival called the Big Day Out that ran for like 25 years. It was like a Lollapalooza thing and the bands loved it. They called it the Big Day Off because, you know, they'd spend two weeks in Australia and only do five shows, like, you know, with 60,000 people a day at these amazing shows. And uh, there was another one uh, that is up near where I live in Australia, which is called Splendor in the Grass. And it was kind of like a more, you, you get your kind of big day out would have your big mainstream, like, you know, a lot of good alt bands, but also you go and see like you know, Pearl Jam or the Foot Fighters or, you know, yeah. like these ba- you know, mainstream bands. And then Splendor in the Grass was this festival that always had that sort of next level but much cooler lineup of bands like even one of those festivals that if you just walked around it and just went and saw shows you would you again the person in charge of it had better taste than you have i think that's that's sometimes what i like i don't have the time to do like become a dance music expert but if james murphy has the time to do that and then he just shows me the best bits of it i'm like oh cool yeah you know what you're doing yeah and it's the same (laughs) With this festival, it's like going to a restaurant and saying, you're the chef, you just like make your best food and then I'll enjoy it, right? You're the expert. And so it was 2010 and I went to uh, this, uh, 29 or 2010, and I went to Splendor in the Grass 
And um, I used to have an earring in my ear that I'd had since I was 14 years old when I went and got an earring and it was in like the top part of my ear. And this dude's come up to me before um, we were, I was waiting with a mate to, to see LCD sound system. And this dude's come up to me. He's gone, hey, me and my girlfriend, my, me and my girlfriend, we always, um, uh, when we're on, like you're watching on TV, we always look at that earring. He's like, can I have that earring? And I was like, dude, I've had this earring since I was 14 years old. Like, I'm not just going to give you my earring. And he goes, what if I give you these two pills? And I was like, hey, you know what? I can buy another earring. This is a good. <laughs> like it was a $15 earring that I got like when I was 14, right? Like it's fine. I can pass it off. This seems like a good deal. I've got my magic beans, Jack style, and I've just gone, all right. So me and my mate watch this show. And I, it might have had something to do with the earring part of the story, but I don't really think it was. It was, I think, the most incredible, possibly to this day, you know, live set that I've seen at a music festival. It just, from the minute it came on to the minute it finished, it just felt like something really incredibly transformative to me. And and that was it. From that moment on, then I was all in like you know when i said to people what bands would you travel to go and see like you know what what band yeah are you really excited if they're putting another album out like lcd sound system yeah that day that moment went from being probably just a band that i liked an act that i liked into being like you know one of my sort of top tier acts yeah dude because you were you were rolling balls bro you were fucking probably chewing your face off Somebody came up with a Vicks vapor rub and gave you a freeze down, and you were just rolling balls. And that there's and, don't, there's and isn't that appropriate though? Like that's what oh, I mean. Like I would have been a man in my mid thirties, like on the timeline of that. Like I'm forty six now, so like I'm what thirty six at the time. The age he is when he writes this album, and the album is all about that idea of like you know holding on to your you know, youth, but like obviously getting older and like, you know, the mistakes of your past versus like who you are now and longing for the past and looking to the future and all these sort of things. And, you know, big nights, you know, rolling deep and hanging out with your friends. So I'm literally listening to it in the perfect environment for all the themes that are happening, right? I'm in the perfect age group. I'm in the perfect environment. I feel like we're in, like, we have very, you know, similar minds. I'm connecting on with, yeah. I mean, not every artist in my collection has had the opportunity to have the perfect circumstance to listen to them and get into them, but I had it. Yeah, you, you are the perfect guest. Actually, you said that too, because literally I was going to follow that up with, doesn't this album now even hit differently than it did for me in two, cause I, I heard this in 2006, 2000, well no, 2000, I heard of the band in 2006, got this record right before I moved to LA in 2007. And I was just like you said, I was like, yeah, this is good dance music. It's really fun. It's repetitive, but there's a post-punk, there's a whole feeling of, of different other bands have had their influence in them. And then I just kind of forgot about them until really, uh, they did the reunions tour in 2016, where I was on two bills at festivals like Big Day Out. I was on Bonnaroo and Outside Lands with them. And I had just recently gotten sober in 2016 in May. And in, and in June, we went to Bonnaroo. And I remember I was there with some comedians you may know, Ari Shafir, Dan Soder. And I was sober. And yet they all took ecstasy and we all went to go see uh, LCD at Bonnaroo. And it was one of those shows where I looked at them and I was like, 
God, I wish I, I hadn't <laughs> just gotten sober to enjoy this. Because I used to be a raver. I talk about it all the time. And there is nothing better than connecting with a DJ, connecting with a band, sober. But then if you can, but but then if you have those drugs like mushrooms or ecstasy or something that just makes it even just a chef's kiss, just mwah. Like, and I and I felt the I could see like the enjoyment they were having. And I've talked to Ari about LCD post that, and he said, like, uh, they're now one of my favorite bands because of that show and and i and i couldn't agree with you more man is that now i'm 40 and listening to this record now it just hits on every level because the main theme like you said is it's about the scene and the old guys that are aging out of it and i, I just think if you to this is to all the listeners out there so fleece army if you haven't listened to this record yet on the list uh, read the lyrics, especially if you're getting your mid to late 30s, because you will feel it. Unless you're a total dweeb and you never had a cool moment of your life. There is there is something really, really cool about this band. And and it's because I think they're the blending of all the genres. Um, but yeah, let's dive into the record, because there's so many great songs on here that I, I feel like yeah, there's, there's so much shit to talk about. All right, so... The album starts with Get Innocuous. And this was the first song written for the album, and it takes its time building up slowly around sounds all generated from a Yamaha CS60 synthesizer. I think it sounds kind of like a cross between, like, sloppy early 80s electro freestyle and then also some, like, German, like, you know, fucking krautrock, like, craft work. Um... And then what's cool about this song, Will, is that about two minutes in, there's this stack of vocals that kind of reminds me of something from, like, Bowie's Berlin, uh, or even, like, because we've been going through, like, three or four of his records already, Brian Eno. Did you hear any of that? Or? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, I guess the more you say this, the more I realize that I'm just somebody who, you know, like somebody with better musical taste than me to put something together for me. This is a real tasting plate of these amazing other artists distilled into a moment. And there's so much of that on this album. But yeah, even that title, Get Innocuous, it's such a, I think there's a real sort of smart-arsy humour to everything. And, and it's always on that edge of, is this horribly pretentious and should I hate this? Or is this just like, just on that edge of, and this song, it's like, it's not a big banger initially for the start of the album like you think about this idea that they've come onto the scene and they you know really have made a bit of a splash and like everyone's really excited for this album and you would think it would open with something that was just like I don't know a bit more sort of in your face or a bit more direct but he really he's like no 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 I'm just gonna take some time it's a slow build it's a very very slow build but then when it kicks in it, it's it's and really starts getting going. It's phenomenal, um, right? It's that confidence. You you don't bail out of it because you're like, I oh, know it's okay. This is this is not just going to be like this for the whole time. I don't know where this is going, but I have confidence that he knows where it's going. For sure, for sure. All right, so uh, I don't know why this is my favorite moment, but this might be my favorite moment on the record. Peter, uh, play five ten.
That was it. That I don't know why I liked that so much. Just that that just uh, Nancy just saying get innocuous, and then that guitar like rip because because it took me back, dude. There used to be this party in Baltimore at this place called Tax Low. Uh, that was in the worst section of Baltimore. And every Monday night they had this, uh, I don't want to call it underground, but very like, you know, joy division-y, hipster-y, dumpster divery, like art school student dance party where they would play stuff like this. They would play, uh, like I said, Joy Division. They would play uh, Franz Ferdinand, The Cure, and then Block Party. And I, it, this song just takes me back where I see all those hipster girls that went to Micah, which is the art school in Baltimore, and they're just dancing, and it's just, it smells, and it, it's it's perfect. Well, I, I also think this has a really Block Party vibe. They, they were one of those bands also that I kind of got into, and it definitely has that driving energy, right? And it's unexpected. Like, it, that's not what you expect after this sort of get innocuous, you know, lyric comes in and, and the vocals there. You're like, that's not traditionally, I think, what would come after that. And then suddenly you've got this, like, driving guitar. And I'm like, I love this. So Murphy explained its meaning by saying, it's about myself trying not to be on tour and trying to go home. I don't like it. I like traveling. I like seeing cities, but it's truly grueling. You arrive in a bus, you wake up, you go inside to try to find a bathroom, you do a sound check, do interviews. After that, maybe go backstage, do dinner, and then it's time for opening bands, and then you play. So I want to I want to ask you, because of what's going on in the world and, and dealing with all the touring stuff, um, have you... How have you stayed sharp during all of this? And when do you feel like you'll be comfortable going back into the rooms? I have not stayed sharp. I am rounded out at the edges. I am safe to be played with by children. There is no sharpness about me at all, my friend. I am the opposite of one of those Ginsu knives you see on late night TV. You just get a shoe and I'd just be rubbing my knife against that shoe. It is so blunt. I've done nothing. I've done no. I was meant to be touring all this year and like I had a massive tour. Like it was literally going to be, you know, the biggest tour I've done in about five years. And the fact that it all went away, I just couldn't, I couldn't bear doing some incredibly scaled down version of that. It was much better for me to, I haven't had a break in 25 years. Like I've written a new show every year for the comedy festival in Melbourne for the last 25 years. So I have never had a break. So I thought, well, you know what? The universe is telling me that I should have a break. I'm going to have a break. And then as people have gone back, you know, now people are back. There are shows that are back. Like, you know, you can go and do a drive-in show or whatever. No, no, I can't. No, I can't. Firstly, I'm so used to people laughing at my jokes and me hearing them that I just don't think I can go to a world where I'm not hearing them. That's the bit of the job that I like. I got into comedy because I like hearing people laugh. I didn't get into comedy because I like hearing people beep their horn at me. If I want people to beep their horn at me, I can stand in the middle of an intersection and people will beep their horn at me and I don't have to write new material, right? It's not actually a pleasant sensation in my body. Your body goes into panic mode when someone beeps their horn at you and now I'm inviting that into the most sacred part of my life. No, thank you. And I did this show where I had to film myself doing stand-up for like, you know, it was actually for a TV set, right? No audience, just film yourself doing stand-up. I had to set up my own cameras because they couldn't send out crew because of COVID. So 
I had to do this. It was meant to be like one shot, six minutes, right? It was 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm in my full stand-up gig and I'm pretending that I'm doing like late night stand-up at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I realize I can't get it because I normally have had a drink. So now I'm drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning just so I can record this like stand-up set that I'm filming myself like under my house. And like my girlfriend is upstairs just like, like what is going on down there? And I realize I've become one of those guys that won't tell his family that he's lost his job and just gets dressed in his suit every day and gets his suitcase and then just goes and drinks vodka out of his suitcase in a park. That's what I felt like. And I'm like, no, I am waiting until audiences are back and comedy is back and then I will do comedy again. But in the meantime, I'm I'm relaxed. Isn't Australia open though? Isn't it like more open than America? I mean, America's where, you know, we have the, I hate to say red state, blue states, red states for the most part are open, blue states like California shut down, but there still are shows. And the cool shit, Will, is that like people like Bill Burr and Jim, like I'm, cause I'm going up nonstop, but like they're coming to these shitty ass shows that I'm doing that are in these weird locations. So you haven't done any live comedy since? None. Uh, no, and you know what it is? I love that it's back. Like I, my personal uh, not, not doing it, it has nothing to do with me not loving that it's back. I think it's amazing that it's back. And I think there's going to be so many cooler shows. And I actually love a bunch of the online shows as well. I've just made a personal choice for myself. I was like, oh, I've got this opportunity to have a break and have a think about what it is that I want to do. You know, the themes on this record, you know, so much about this idea of, you know, moving on from one part of your life. Like James Murphy is literally talking about this idea of being DJing. I've been really successful at DJing, but maybe now I want to be doing something different to DJing and I'm doing these shows and I'm, what, what, what do I want to transi- transition into next? I've taken this time to have a little conversation about some of those things myself. Nice. I know, but dude, can I just tell you right now, you're a perfect guest because you blended it right back to motherfucking LCD. <laughs> Boom! All right, Hall of Fame, 500 guests here. Unless you start doing Holocaust denial shit, and then and then you'll get to like number five. All right, because Neil deGrasse Tyson was full. It was all Holocaust denial. It's uh, technically the third time you've brought it up, and I've not brought it up once. So out of the two of us, who's going to get done for Holocaust denial? I need more it feels like feels like one of us is itching for a Holocaust denial conversation. <laughs> Dude, it's like it's like, I, dude. Sundays, I am checked out, bro. We're recording this, everybody, on a Sunday. It's a Monday for him, and like, dude, I should be on the couch watching football. Um, but uh, now this is perfect. This is perfect. But well, it's, it's Monday. It's Monday. Happening. Monday, eight a.m. <laughs> currently for me. Which back in the past, I may have listened to some LCD sound system Monday, eight at eight a.m. But it wasn't normally that I got up specifically to do. Oh it. no, no, no. Yeah, dude. I, I've I've been leaving raves around this time. All right. Which is a perfect, perfect, like, uh, segue into the next song, Time to Get Away. Uh, immediately, I heard Prince all over this. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. About you. I caught a lot of static. And me. I would like it automatic. Oh, what, 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 what? Did you think would happen next? For you, I caught a lot of static, and for me, I would like it automatic. I don't know why I love that line so much, but I do. What does it mean to you? Hmm. 
For you, I caught a lot of static. For me, I would like it automatic. I don't know. I I mean, it, well, first of all, this is people think this song is about an ex-girlfriend or something. Uh, but it, this is what I I came to read is that this is about an old manager of his, uh, and he's quoted saying, "Fuck that guy." I paid a lot of money for the rights to say "fuck that guy." And then when you read the lyrics, the rest of it, it all makes sense. Um, you know, because yeah, dude, I, I, dude, I've, and no, not shitting on, on my current manager or any managers. Like when you deal with somebody in the industry, um, you know, I mean, dude, you've been doing it 25 years, bro. It's like, we've had good people. We've had bad people. We've had people that appeared good. And then in actuality there, they were horrible and, and led us in, in terrible directions. Yeah. But that is, that is a great lyric based on the fact that you've now cleared it up. It's just somebody basically going, Oh, I got a lot of shit about my manager and I wanted it to be a lot easier than that. That's basically the theme of that, but it's a much more poetic way to put it. For sure. He could have been like, fuck that guy and I'm taking my 10% back. Suck my dick. I mean, cause that's, I felt that way. I've created projects and had to, and, and, and somebody has done nothing, nothing for it. And I've done everything. I talked to the network. They came to me and I did everything. And I still pay them the 10%. And it's and I get it. It's out of the respect. And it's out of the fact that they are supposedly helping you. But, I mean, I have yet to be severely fucked over. But I have heard such horror stories. So what is, what is it? What does this mean to you being that you've been doing it 25 years? Uh, okay. Well, firstly, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's weird, the management, you know, relationship. Because it has to be so incredibly intimate, right? Like that, you know what, sometimes you see those documentaries about people who've had like the same manager or agent for 50 years and they've essentially become like a couple, you know, they tour on the road together. They, you know, don't do anything without each other. And you just like, I, I didn't realize when I was getting management that I was like signing up to a relationship that might be longer than my marriage. So there's there's that. And then sometimes people look at their manager like their their employer where you're like, I've never got like 15% of his money. He only gets 15% of my money. It only works that way around. So I, I don't know if you're a comedian, you can get away with what James Murphy's got away with though. Because imagine just, I mean, comedians love rewriting history. Like, you know, some shit went down with my manager and here's my angry routine about it. But nobody would really, after a while, everybody would be like, oh, it's just still banging on about his manager and like how he didn't want to pay that. We're real bored of that. Whereas like James Murphy's like, yeah, I'm going to turn it into a banger that people will be playing 30 years from now and they will still know that I had a shitty manager. That's like a proper like long-term burn. Oh, I know. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, So everyone's got horror stories. Uh, how did you get screwed by the business? Um, oh, you know what? I, I'll tell you a story because there's only really one. I've been very lucky, I, I will say, but there is one. I had been booked to headline this like major, it was a new comedy festival that we were doing in Australia and they'd booked me to headline. It was on an island and then like it fell apart like three days before and they owed me like a lot of money, a lot of money that I, I never got, right? But then the dude who was like a bit of a comedy legend, so never made, I was like, you couldn't make too much of a big deal about it, right? Like he was a comedy legend guy in Australia. He had this idea for this thing. This thing didn't turn out and we all got screwed. I just happened to get screwed a lot more than some other people got screwed, right? But everyone got screwed, you know? It was just one of those situations where you're like, I can handle it. But it was, you know, it was a decent amount of money. So anyway, then he like died soon after. So, <laughs> so like... 
Like, and he was like this beloved character. And so everyone's like so upset about it. And I wanted to be so upset about it. And I wanted to be that dude who could be like, no, no, I get it. He made a really brilliant, huge contribution to our industry. And I should just be able to look at that rather than the huge amount of money he died owing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't able to fully reconcile those two emotions. No, I get it. Oh, 100%. Maybe, did you like, in, in anger, you were like, fuck that guy. I hope he fucking dies. Oh, wait, yeah. he did? Oh, okay. Ooh, hang on. Um, oh, sorry. I feel bad about that. Yeah, I should have. I should have gone to the funeral and just like eaten a lot at the buffet. Just been yeah. like, I am entitled <laughs> to a lot of this. It's like, Jesus, Will is over at the charcuterie board for a long time. Just eating all the olives. I love that. I love that, dude. All right. North American scum. Uh, so this was the lead single and instantly appealed to fans of the previous album's popular track, Daft Punk is Playing at My House. This is another tongue-in-cheek LCD song. This sends up the reputation of the stereotypical ugly Americans by agreeing with, while still taking ownership and pride. Also, as most of their fame outside of New York was in other countries, Murphy wanted listeners to know that they weren't actually from Europe. Um, but in my opinion, the star of this song is Nancy. I, I, I've heard it called Wang, and I've heard it also called Wong. So let's go with Wang. The star of it is Nancy. Uh, Peter, uh, play her at 235, bro. I did it once I just love, I love uh, the dichotomy between both of their voices. Uh, I think it's perfect. Um, you know, she's almost Alf Key, and yet it's it, it all makes sense. Uh, and also, also, I think what I really love about this song is that it hits harder now with everything that's going on in the world uh, than it did before. Because America, we just keep getting scummier and scummier with each passing year until 2020, until we reelected a fucking civilized person in the White House. Um, but tell me your thoughts on this. How do you feel? Yeah, well, firstly, it's one of those incredibly like savvy observations because firstly, you know, you, there could have been, uh, you know, the George Bush era could have been over. You know, America could have regained its worldwide reputation as being, you know, like a you know, respected world country. But he really locked in. You're like, oh, you don't know the half of it, mate. You listen back to this one and think, this is a pretty naive take. Things, if people got the opportunity, they'd probably go back to those lovely times these days and America's reputation worldwide. Oh, no, mate. Mate, well, yeah, we hadn't hit rock bottom at that point. But I also think that it just was great because this is a very pro-American song dressed up is dressed up in the language of like, you know, if you hear it and go North American scum, I think it appealed to the audience outside America who were like, yeah, North Americans are scum. But if you actually listen to the song, it's actually quite defensive about that idea of what it is to be American. And, you know, like a lot of his music and the things of his music of going, I've done some really great things and America's done some really great things, but I also recognize all the shitty things about it. And I kind of love it all despite that. That's a big theme of a lot of the stuff that he talks about. And, it's just catchy as all get out. I mean, it's just a good song on the surface, but 
like I think the lyrical content is just, it's one of those things that's incredibly clever. I imagine it got sung unironically as much as it got sung ironically. And I think that's kind of the genius of it. Totally. So let me ask you, what were your misconceptions about what North America was going to be like? Well, see, I reckon it's the other way around because the problem, we see so much of you. You see so little of us. So going into that circumstance, like, you know, we've grown up in Australia, there is an argument that someone in Victoria might know more about what it's like to be a New York Jew from popular culture than they would to know what it's like to live in Darwin in Australia. You know, like, you know, America's cultural imperialism is pretty strong in Australia. You know, they always say that, you know, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. But like Australia, we're your number one ally. Like we are the millhouse to your Bart Simpson, you know, the wind beneath your dickhead wings. Like we are the only country that's gone to every single war that you've got yourself involved in since, you know, the Second World War. Like we are your biggest ally in the world, you know, and mostly because of our geographical region, you know, that we're so close to China and China could invade us with the kids who played the drums at the Beijing opening ceremony Olympics. So, like, (laughs) you know, it is a marriage of convenience of type. But, you know, we're koalas to you. We're kangaroos. We're Outback Steakhouse, you know. Isn't that terrible? We we, We tried to sum up your whole beautiful land with this shitty chain restaurant where we deep fry an onion and, and, and give them, which like, is the- by the way, not a dish of Australia. Like it's literally not? not some, no, the blooming onion no. is an American creation. No, There's no such thing as a blooming onion in Australia. What about kookaburra wings? It turns out you don't eat them. They're an endangered species. Oh my God. <laughs> that was, I used to love them. All right. All right. Last one. Uh, uh, the uh, the chocolate thunder from down under the brownie with the scoop of ice cream medical condition that's what okay. cho- if someone in Australia <laughs> said you have chocolate thunder down under you would say well please see a doctor about that <laughs> alright well what are the misconceptions that Americans have about Australia besides just that you said koalas because it's like for me I think as I have never been we were supposed to go in 2020 to the comedy festival this year uh, but unfortunately COVID but I guess yeah like that the way that like I started this by talking about Jim you know uh, taking me through this like Australian uh, you know cornucopia of all the different foods and stuff like that it was like I was like I mean, sound like a fucking idiot, but like I was like shocked. I was like, "Wait, they make chocolate in Australia?" It, it just it blew my and it, and it was better than American. Yeah, it was ten times better. So, what do you think? What's the biggest misconceptions that Americans have about Australia? Then, I mean, I think that Paul Hogan did us a lot of good, but also a lot of damage. Um, the biggest misconception I actually think is that Yahoo Serious was a much bigger star. Then Americans seem to think. Well, yeah, what happened? <laughs> what happened to him, dude? I love young Einstein. The thing that you are genuinely amazed at when you go to America is the high brand recognition of Yahoo Serious. Because Yahoo Serious is just not like a famous Australian person at all. But for whatever reason, had this incredible moment in America where you can be like in the deep south having a conversation with somebody and they're like, what happened to Yahoo Serious? And you're like, how do you guys know about Yahoo Serious? Like, what, did, what is your, your prime minister still Immortan Joe? Is it still, yeah. <laughs> was it Lord Humongous or Immortan Joe? Actually, we there's a couple of those rolling around. That's fine. But yeah, so I think that there's that, like that idea and that idea that everything here can kill you 
like you know that there were these outback people you know i think there's we're like 90 percent of australians live on the coast you know like it's a big old country but most of it's just desert in the middle of it we all live in cities around the coastline so it's not you know you're not seeing kangaroos all the time and you're not seeing like dead deadly animals all the time but it's good mythology oh god fucking can't eat fucking alice springs chicken anymore or blooming onions and i feel like a fucking race trader all right uh someone great so cool thing about this this was written over a segment lifted from 4533 a 45-minute track that nike commissioned from them to offer their customers an exclusive soundtrack for jogging i remember that uh and this is and this is you know truthfully this is a perfect song to run to uh peter play a minute in The, the repetition, uh, the, the synthesizers, the no lyrics for a lot of it. Uh, this to me is the sound of legs cramping. Like I just can hear like somebody like, ah, fuck shit. Ah, Jesus. All right, just walk it off. Ah, God. But yeah, it's it's a great song. Uh, thoughts on this? It, it is interesting, isn't it? That like this music feels to me so much like it's made for, you know, late nights and bad decisions. But you know, as you said, he did this like jogging album for Nike right in the middle of recording this. And, it, you know, it obviously influenced particularly, he said, I think the second half of the album. And it's it's funny that, that it also works for jogging. I guess like is dancing close enough to jogging that the two work together? Is that what it is? But they both use your arms and your legs and your heart rate. And- well, that, that was a, such a that was such a cool way to put it that it's it's for the drugs and the late nights and then it's also for working out. There's something because you know when you're fucking starting a night and you're about to you're putting down some coke lines or whatever the drug you're gonna do. It's like you, you're not listening to Tony Bennett. You know what I mean? You want to fucking listen to like you want to listen to like shit that gets you amped up and like hard rock dance music and the same thing applies for working out it's like like i i listen to these albums when i work out uh during covid because i'm working out in my garage and i mean there are days where it's like i have an upcoming album which is like lcd sound system and i'm like oh my god or mia and i'm like this is perfect and then there's weeks where i've been like okay i'm putting on Sinead o'connor's uh second album and and i'm fucking gonna do some cleaning jerks and it's just it's it doesn't work so yeah dude yeah what if, what's going on with you man you look a little down this week nick drake week i'm so sorry i just can't do yeah, any list to nick drake yeah dude it's a it's it's really really tough dude i'm listening uh to uh paul simon um just all the time dude all right, this is pretty boss. Everything is played by Murphy and never one to shy away from loss, existentialism, and other deep thoughts. This is likely about world-renowned pioneer of group therapy, Dr. George Kamen, uh, Murphy's old therapist, to whom the record is dedicated. Um, yeah, great song, dude. Any more thoughts on this? Well, this is also, yeah, it sounds like a, a love song to an ex-girlfriend, right? But that yes, it's apparently about his therapist. So we're getting a real insight into his life. You know, basically he's written like a angry song about his tour manager. Like, and then he's like, and now my therapist. 
And then uh, the woman who gets me coffee at the local, I'm just going to run through. I've got a list of grievances, and here they are. This is why he's cool, though. This is why this is, I think this is why this connects more than, like, because, dude, there was a bands like Hot Chip and The Rapture that they worked with that are in that similar vein of, of punk, dance, electro, whatever you want to call it. And yet... We're here talking about this album. Do you know what I mean? Like those albums have great songs on them from those other bands, but there is a there is a depth, there is an existential vibe of life uh, to James, and I and I think you know, especially when we get down to the facts, we'll see all of this. So, and then the next song is "All My Friends," which is like the big hit off this record. So uh, Murphy was thirty seven when this single came out. And this displays the nostalgia of being a touring musician who sees his life, priorities, and those around him changing and some falling away. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. So this is one of their most popular songs, and to me it sounds like something uh, that would be in a Zach Braff movie. You know what I mean? Or at least the trailer. At least the trailer. It's like, you know, it's hard getting older, and it's just him, like, with his wife, and you can tell they're a little bit distant, and, you know, and his dad, played by Elliot Gould, is there, and he's like, you gotta just love. You gotta love. Starring Zach Braff. I, I, I know what you mean. It's one, it's one of those things where... And I, I think I know exactly what you mean, which is like in the sort of in 500 Days of Summer where like it's got to be a Pixie song that's playing in the elevator, but the most obvious Pixie song and that's your like wink to be guy say, I know about cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about <laughs> cool stuff, guys. I've heard of the Pixies. It's like Listen to on, this song. He gets on the elevator and it's just like, where is my mind? And the door is closed. Yeah, dude. It's hip. It's hip, hip music. But, and, but rightfully so. Rightfully so. This is, yeah. So I'm I'm just going to put it on the record. Like literally one of my probably top 10 songs of all time. Really? I just think that, yes. I, I just love this song so much. It's one of those ones that takes me to so many places. It feels, you know, I mean, he's talking about the life of a touring DJ. You know, it's not so dissimilar to the experiences we've had as like touring comedians. And you know, there's so much of that, that part you just played, which, you know, that first five years trying to get with the plan, then the next five years trying to get with your friends again. Like that still still feels relevant to me. Like, you know, that idea of what I've really missed, I think, about this year, you know, more than actually doing the shows is that so many of the times when I'm doing those shows, like I'm at a festival with all my friends. Like the reason I do the festival every year in Melbourne is partly because I like doing comedy at the festival, but partly because it's a month where I get to go and hang out with my friends that I've been hanging out with that month every year for the last 25 years. And you get, that used to happen every weekend. You know, you used to hang out with these people all the time and you go out all night and like, so, you know, like this song is, you know, that idea of pushing on beyond when you should be pushing on and the sun comes up, but you still don't want to go home. And you're just like, these are, but at the same time, you're so desperate. Like, when are we going to get out? Of that? When are we going to? When are we going to become the stars? When are we going to? Like, not realizing that when that stuff happens, so much of this stuff actually goes away with it, and you'll you know sit around going, "What happened to that? Was I actually?" They were the cool days. Like, I was having more fun when I was wishing those days away. And I think that that line just sums that up so incredibly well. That this song resonates with not only is it a great song. 
Like it is a great song. And there's so many bits of it where you go, like I love something. I mean, it's seven minutes long, but I love something where you go, oh, that's my favorite part. Or that's my favorite part. And then you get right to the end when, you know, that last refrain of like, you know, where are your friends tonight? Like, and it feels so desperate. And like, it's like, it's still got a punch right till the end. Like everything about this, this is like my Hamilton. I don't know that I need to go and see Hamilton. I feel like this is Hamilton to me. It tells like a whole story. I feel like if he just wanted to do like a 45 minute version of all my friends, I'd like be like, yeah, cool. Just flesh it out a bit. What else happened in the night? <laughs> so um, <laughs> Who else do you miss? All right. So when asked why James uh, thought this song was so well received, he said, I don't know. It's saddish and people are old. So yeah, hit it, hit it, and, and hit it on the fucking nose, dude. Um, all right, us versus them. This is uh, this is the best song on the record, in my opinion, uh, because it's like this shit is just. All I wrote was funky, so it's f u w w n n k y. So it's funky. Uh, now I can play. So many great parts from this song, Will. Uh, but I just want to highlight this one part. Uh, Peter, play it. I mean, a motherfucking cowbell solo, dude. I, I, I was like, oh, you got me. Not just the cowbell solo. The arrogance of introducing it with bells. You know, that moment. <laughs> you know? It's like, uh, yeah, I dude. know. I know what I'm doing. I'm not just putting a cowbell solo in here. I'm acknowledging the fact that I'm putting a cowbell solo in yeah. here. Oh, I, I love this song. Uh, so this, in my opinion, is kind of reminiscent of like some talking heads shit with the more repetitive chanting. Uh, some of their songs it reminds me of is Slippery People. The lyrics seem to establish uh, some more of that with us or against us hip hipster attitude that happens when credibility is more important than popularity. Uh, thoughts on the song? Yeah, love it. I mean, I, this is the great joy of this album is that there's nothing that I don't love on it. Like when I revisited it, I was wondering, you know, is there going to be something that just doesn't stand up? Is there something that I'm going to want to skip through? But it just has not happened. And you kind of forget. You're just like, oh, God. I thought, like, oh, man. Like, this is like the what, fifth or sixth song into the album, right? And, like, every single one of them has been great so far. And you've still got this up your sleeve. And I know you've still got other stuff up your sleeve at this point. Like, this is – you've put – you've buried this in the middle. And you've gone from, like, doing, like, a, you know, version of a New Order song, like you said, to, like, doing a version of a Talking Heads song, but without sounding like you're doing a New Order song or doing a Talking Heads song. It's, like, it all makes sense together, and yet it's two different styles, you know, it's kind of two different artists. And this is what I love about this album as well, is that he, it's, like, it really is the things he's worrying about, isn't it? Like you said, it's like him going to therapy. It's him and his manager. It's him worrying about, I don't know, is it like, is it better to be cool or really successful, which is coming from somebody who is managing to be both cool and really successful. So it's a really middle-class pondering. You know, it's really something that's troubling this guy who's been super successful at one part of his career and is now being super successful at the next part of his career. The dude who turned down the opportunity to be a staff writer on Seinfeld, he's really just sitting around going, oh, am I, 
Is my commerciality outweighing my credibility? <laughs> what a terrible problem to have, James Murphy. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like like that you're, you know, because you're 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 so popular, you're so great. I mean, but do you ever feel like you're losing that like that fire that you had as a writer, as a comic, as, you know, like tell me. I think so. I think these are good conversations to have. That's why I love having them, right? Because then you can reestablish. I think that's what I've loved about this year is like the reason I'm not doing it at the moment is I think that I wanted to etch a sketch it a little. I wanted to just like erase it completely and say, you know, a bit like with the world, like we had an opportunity, the world's been like knocked down, right? And we have an opportunity to rebuild the world. And some people are like, let's just rebuild it how it was, you know? And you're like, well, hang on. There wasn't enough beds for people and there was asbestos in the walls and there was like a hole in the roof. Why don't we rebuild it better? Like let's put in extra beds and let's put sunroof on, you know, and let's fucking, you know, do this together. Let's reimagine what the world could be. And I think you've got to have those conversations with yourself as like an artist. And sometimes you just don't when you're doing gigs, right? You're just like, I'm thinking about the next gig. I'm thinking about the next show. I'm thinking about, I've got to fill this 10 minutes. I've got to fill this half hour. I've got to like get this hour together because I've got to have it done by March. So you're really just thinking about the process rather than what the process is actually about. And so, yeah, I love it. I, I think it's a cool conversation to have. And I've had definitely had times in my life where I've done, shitty things and i'm suddenly like why am i doing this shitty thing and, you know like it does not give me any joy um you know and i'm doing it for all the wrong reasons yeah you know it's so funny that you said that because um, you've got a list of shitty things i've done and you got to go through right. them number one <laughs> all right you made me do a podcast at 10 30 in the morning no i i couldn't agree with you more as a comic covid um you know, because I, I haven't reached the level of of success that you have, but uh, I've been doing it 12 years. And yeah, dude, I've, you know, even when I sold my TV show to Comedy Central, I was like, I'm, you know, I knew they were going to change the show and fuck with it and basically remove me from it as much as they could. You know, but I was like, Pat, I'm getting paid all this money. And, and I'm able now to look back and say, no, that was a wise decision because that set me up for the other projects. And I'll do that decision nine times out of 10. But with COVID... Dude, as a comic, it's helped me restart and find my love for stand-up comedy. Whereas now I'm performing in the shittiest, you know, like by the side of a creek, you know, by a pool or whatever place we can get up on stage. And yet I've never been more excited to be on stage because I, I just love it. And I don't care how well I do. I just want to have fun. I'm fully present. And... And I honestly, it's like, you know, before, I remember there was a couple of years where I was like, will I ever be playing theaters like just me as a headliner? And now I'm like, oh, no, I will be because I'm I am just so dialed into who I am and I'm not afraid to tackle subjects. If I find it funny and I want to have fun talking about it, then I'm going to do it. So, yeah, dude, those conversations, sometimes it takes fucking tragedy. Sometimes it takes something, you know, positive to make you change. But uh, sometimes it takes an LCD sound system song to make you uh, go over well, it. I see. You know, I think that the, this is why I like James Murphy as well. He's like kind of self-involved. And I think as comedians, like, you know, at the heart of what we do is, it's, I mean, you know, particularly when you're doing solo stuff, it is, it is incredibly self-involved. It's incredibly self-indulgent to think, you know, that, hey, you know what I'm going to do for a job? Something that everybody else does for free every day. Yeah, I'm going to talk. That's my job. You know how you talk every day and no one gives you money? I reckon I'm better at talking than you. I reckon I'm so much better at talking that I'm just going to talk for an hour. No, you don't get to talk back. No, no, you'll just sit there. You'll hand over some money. And then, yeah, if you talk, you're out. 
and I won't give you your money back. This is how it works. This is how good at talking I am, that I have a no refunds policy if you talk during my talking. This is like, I mean, that in itself is a very, you know, self-involved way to look at the world. That all your and I think that why James Murphy's music, I think, appeals to me on thematic levels is he does have that same mindset where all his big problems are very much you know, problems of his own making and his own resolving and he's just working them all out and there's that element of self-indulgence and how he turns that self-indulgence into art that everybody can enjoy that I really respond to. No, I love that. I love that. All right, so you had said a moment ago you don't skip over any tracks on this record, but I've got two in a row. These are, I don't skip them. I don't, because dude, it's, when I'm listening to the, the breakdown and I'm doing my like eighth, ninth listen and I've already listened to the songs over and over, if I haven't found something in it that I really, really like, I eventually just kind of skip over. And these next two, they're not bad songs. I'm not saying they're bad songs. Uh, but these are probably my two least favorite on the record. Uh, Watch the Tapes is the first one. So this to me is a, a very, like, it's probably the most punky new wave song on here. It plays again with the notion that planning a successful career is something as fickle and fleeting as the music industry is sort of absurd. Uh, there is one thing I really do like. Uh, Peter, play 206. Oh, That's it, Kelly. I was like, I love that Wahoo. I don't, and I don't hate the song. So please don't think I'm saying that they're bad songs. But it's like I just, it, it just these two songs just show me why how much better the other songs on the record are. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Like, I, but it is one of those things where I was like, oh, this could be like a stroke song. It could be a block party song. It could be like a blur song. Like bits of pieces of blur. You know, like. I like yeah. I mean, I like I said, there's not a, there's not a song on this album that I don't like, but I can understand that this is probably the the least unique. Yeah, can we can we also? Um, God, I can't think of his fucking name because you just mentioned Blur. Is like Blur is a band that I I didn't really like while they were going on. And then once, oh fuck, what's the lead singer's name? Damon Orban. Yes, thank you. I can't believe I couldn't remember his name. Once he started doing solo shit, first it was Gorillaz, and I was like, oh shit, this dude, this is actually pretty cool. But his solo music, uh, I think it's Selfish, Selfish Giant, I think is the record. I probably fucked it up. It, it's one of my favorite records that I've heard in the last 10 years. And it's just like, talk about like starting with one style of music and then just evolving into this like genius. So I just wanted to give him a shout. You're a big fan of Blur. Yeah, and, and well, he, I think part of the reason is that his music is so eclectic now that he's a bit hard to pin down. Like you, you're like, oh, he does this too? Oh, and he's doing this. Like he hasn't tried to combine them all into one thing. He has a whole bunch of little projects where he sort of makes different styles of music with different people or by himself. And yeah, I find him an incredibly interesting musical artist. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, and we'll talk about that even more in a second when we get to the final track. But we got we got Sound of Silver before that. Um, so with only one verse or chorus repeated for the whole song, it still perfectly captures how one looks back on the awkward teenage years fondly because of youth, but often forgets about how difficult and savage those years actually were. Uh, Murphy describes using it for the title of the second album by saying, I very much like the concept of silver. My dad used to say, having a child is a permanent silver medal, meaning that the best you could ever do for the rest of your life is second place because you just made something that 
for your lifetime has to be first place. Yeah, we, I think we've suddenly discovered why James Murphy was spending so much money on therapy. Yes. Oh, <laughs> like, my God. <laughs> my, my dad used to say to me constantly, I'm a silver medal. <laughs> my dad, please, just tell me that you love me. <laughs> um, I do like this part so much. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. This to me sounds like Moby wrote the score for The Little Mermaid. It's like electronic <laughs> uh, bubble music. Um, he he was so inspired by the flash of glam rock scene in the early 70s. And while making this, he coated his recording studio uh, with aluminum foil to get the right vibe of this record. And, and to keep out the alien messages, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, like, th- this is what I'm saying, is that these last two songs, everything we've listened to so far on the record, we still have, you know, a, a fucking banger to talk about. But it's just, this isn't a bad song. This, you know, it's a break from the 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 real full steam ahead uh, dance music. This is, you know, it's, it's probably for when, you know, let's equate this to an ecstasy role. You know, it's like it comes out, it's building, it's building, then the album's taken off and you've got some harder songs. And now it's starting to wind down where it's like, all right, I'm coming back to reality a little bit. Uh, just my thoughts. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, and also, if you're talking about your jogging album, it's kind of, we're getting towards the warm down lap, right? You're not doing your stretches yet, but you've, you know, you're slowing down a bit. You just need something to sort of keep you going a bit more rhythmically. I like the themes of it because it says to me that this album is about that idea of always looking forward and always looking back and how as human beings, you know, like it's not just about this DJ wondering where is his party days gone, but also this idea that we look back on teenage years with a fondness where we don't remember all the hard things about those times. And I guess thematically that plays back into when we remember all those party times, we don't remember actually all the shitty bits. We're just remembering all the good bits of it. And maybe as human beings, we are caught in this like permanent state of always wanting to be advanced of where we are and also looking back, you know, on on where we were previously with, you know, distorted views of that. It's a mindfulness song is what I'm really saying, <laughs> Josh. No, but it like the themes of the album is strong to me. I get, I know what you mean. It's it's like very simplistic and like that it really is just quite a chant over a beat really. But I think that's kind of what I like about it as well is we're like, you know, we're not done. But we're not gonna, I'm not gonna work you too hard at this part of the evening. You know, something you can just nod your head along to, and you can, you know, you you even if you don't know the lyrics, you'll pick them up by the third time we roll into. Them. No, for sure. But also to 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 go off of what you're saying too, because he's setting you up for, in my opinion, uh, one of their best songs, and probably the most unlike anything I had previously heard by this band, which is New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. I, I don't think you that he could have ended this album with anything else on this record. Um, and I wanted to say, do you remember a few songs ago when I said that that was my favorite moment on the record? I lied. Play it, Peter. And I, oh, baby, so 
fucking God. Turn it off. This is, I mean, this, in my opinion, is the best moment on the entire record. It is a complete and utter release, and everything about it is great. The theme, the drums, the strain in his voice, like, and then he ends it with that falsetto note, which is not something that he's normally singing. It's just incredible. Also, I kind of think that this, that he's doing this delicate and and lifting waltz because it kind of describes the disappointment that someone who really loves the city can also hate about it. You know what I mean? It's it's great. It's such a great song. Uh, tell me your thoughts. Well, firstly, it's good that someone's finally written a song about New York. I think it's been too long. <laughs> and I'm glad someone's had a crack at yeah, it. Yeah, dude, but, nobody. <laughs> but I think that what I do like about this New York song is that it does give you a different sense of New York. You know, it is about this guy who's struggling again with this idea of what I first loved about this place maybe isn't what it once was. And yet also he's got to be aware at his age that there was also a greater New York before people like him came along. That there would have been people, you know, as he was coming through, looking back and going, nah, it's not as good as it used to be also. And again, that's really thematic. But also this idea of being able to love something at the same time as like pointing out its flaws, which is also the North American scum theme, right? Is like, you know, and I guess probably the relationship with his therapist, because it sounds like it ended for whatever reason badly, but he's dedicated the album to him. So I assume that there's some sort of like, you know, reconciling there with. So I just love the themes of it, but the humor in it, like even the way, I mean, I know he's been mocked a bit for like, that he sounds a bit like Kermit the Frog on this song, but even that, I kind of like about it. If it has that feeling of like we've had, like you said, we've had a good night out. Like I, I slowed you down a little bit, you know, second last the track, and now this is we flicked on the lights, and this is the sort of you know last song on the piano. You know, you, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. We're yeah, and you know what's funny? I still remember the moment that this song came on when I heard it for the first time. I was I was like in Washington D.C. and it just stopped me in my tracks as soon as it started. Too as soon as it starts, the song has me. Um, and, and then to have such a big ending and then the album end after that, it was like, it was like a holy shit moment. Uh, something really cool that I, that I, cause I found because after this, they quote unquote broke up. So this was the final song that they played at their 2011 four hour farewell concert at Madison square garden before they broke up for five years. Um, this is the cool part. But it was also widely rumored that James Murphy knew he was going to take an extended break from the band. So he announced this as a final show or they likely wouldn't have been able to sell out Madison Square Garden. So I just think that's great because it's like, nope, this is it, everybody. We're done. Please buy a ticket. We need to sell out 33,000 tickets. And uh, yeah, last show ever. Hey, it, it worked for James. It worked for James Murphy. It worked for Hannah Gadsby. Announcing your retirement can sometimes be a very good career move. Yeah, 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 dude. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I do like that idea of like you know building it up for that reason. I love also hearing when a musician is actually a business person, like that that small part of you. Like, there's a famous story I heard about um, the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger, famously very business savvy. And um, they were playing like Wembley Stadium, I think, in, in the UK, in London. And uh, 
it was raining. So the co- concert was going to get cancelled, you know, for that night, big outdoor concert. And uh, Mick Jagger said, you can't announce it until after four o'clock. And everyone's like, oh, okay, we don't really understand why that would be. But he'd worked out that at like four o'clock, everybody would have got there and paid for their parking already. And he had done a deal, like a side deal with the parking operators that they got 50% of the parking money. So he was just like, well, we may as well get like our 50% of the parking money, even though we're going to cancel the concert. And I was just like, you're in the Rolling Stones, man. Surely you don't need to screw people on their parking. But but I just, there is a the part of me that's just like, oh, well, he's, he's, it's show business and he's thinking of it like a business. Yeah, dude. <laughs> All right, let's do some facts and get out of here. Even though this was their major label debut, which meant they had a major machine behind them, Murphy still went on his website and asked every fan that bought their debut to also buy this in its first week to get it to number one. They only got it to number 46. So once again, a businessman. What's the first thing? Well, two things. All right, because I was going to ask this earlier. Uh, when did you know uh, that that you were having real success? And what was the first thing you did? I guess I, I, there's this um, in Australia, which I'm sure that you would love. There's this national youth radio station. I guess the nearest American equivalent is like, it feels a bit like college radio. But um but it's a national youth broadcaster and it's by the ABC. It's called Triple J and um, it plays all this sort of music. This is where you would hear this sort of music and a lot of Australian music and it, no no advertisements, very free speech, employed a lot of comics, you know, in, in the day and these sort of things and just a really cool vibe. So I used to host the breakfast show on that with a guy called Adam Spencer and so I got that show when I was like 25, I guess, and that was when I became sort of someone who was known around the country. And that would have been really in this period of time too. You know, it's like I've been doing comedy for a few years. Suddenly, like you're 25 years old and you get a little bit of money and a little bit of attention. And yeah, that that definitely was like it, where it felt like it all started. And so what was the first thing you did? What was like you start making money? You're You're like, all right, I'm fucking walking into Outback Steakhouse and they're bringing out all the fixings. I would like to think that there was something like really like memorable or something really good that I did, but I, I was living in Sydney. So that's, that's the show was out of Sydney and all my friends were out of Melbourne. And so basically what it actually became was I would just fly back to Melbourne every weekend and then like, you know, fly in on a Friday you know, fly out, fly out on a Sunday without sleeping in between. And so I think a lot of my initial income would have gone on those experiences, those all my friends style, you know, experiences. So speaking of that, amending that, how, are you still in touch with all of the friends that you had when before all the success came? Like, you know, or did you have a lot of drop offs because you know, some like I do. There's there's a guy that me and me and Jeremiah, my producer, who's on watching this right now. We had a we the three of us were gonna move to L.A. and fucking with me, Jeremiah, and my friend Paul, and and we talked about moving to L.A. and moving to L.A. and then I was the only one to do it, and then I started getting the success. Jeremiah went into radio, and, and nothing against Paul because I probably Paul's not listening to this, but it's just like I can't. You don't even talk to him anymore, and it's like you try to reach out, but some people. I'm not saying he's jealous. But, you know, I just think that there's definitely uh, there's a something. So, I mean, have you experienced that? Uh, not really. But, you know, the, the example of it that I will say is this one, which is that I have family members who came to see my first show at the comedy festival who've never come back. And I get that. My first show was terrible. But 
like I'm so much better now. Like, <laughs> like you've really made the wrong decision of coming to the first one and not coming to last year's show. Last year's show was really brilliant. They must just think, ah, oh, well, I saw him once. I assume he's doing the same stuff he was doing 25 years ago. Oh. Dude, I did that too, man. My first stand-up show in LA, I invited my cousin and his girlfriend, and I was supposed to do a half hour, and I, 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 had done, I hadn't done stand-up in over a year. I probably had like three minutes of actual material, and it was just just the worst. The worst. And luckily, he's come back. Luckily, he's come back, and recently. But how bad was it? How bad was that first show that the, that the family came to? Did you? I mean, obviously, honestly, from the fact that I've given, like, offered them tickets every year since, and I've been good for a while. Like, they've had time for, you know, to read some reviews. <laughs> like, they should. But they were obviously so scarred by the experience that they would never come back. All right. All right. Here we go. You mentioned this one earlier, but uh, after college, James Murphy was offered the job of writing spec scripts for a new TV sitcom about life in New York. He passed so he could practice guitar in his apartment, and that sitcom ended up being Seinfeld. I just found that out yesterday. Obviously, you already knew, um, it, which is just insane because it's like, it's such, you know, it turned out in the good for him. You know, he's got a career. He's got money. Uh, have you ever had a misstep like that? If they were something like has turned out better for you that you didn't take? Uh, there, there's been a couple of shows that I don't think that I would have been good at, but um, that ended up becoming big shows that came my way. So one of them was like, and this, you got to go back like, you know, a long time ago, but everyone would know this show now. But I was offered the first season ever to host Big Brother in Australia. And it was like, so it just, when that first came out, it was just coinciding with my sort of career taking off. And like, I had a meeting around this show that like at this stage, I think had only been in whatever Scandinavian country or whatever it was first, but it hadn't really become like the worldwide phenomenon that was going to come. And so, you know, when you kind of have a pitch meeting about something and you're just never really sure when somebody's talking to you about whether it would be a really big deal or whether it would be like, you know, and I just walked out of that meeting going, this is the worst idea for a TV show. There is no way that anybody is ever going to watch this show. This seems like an absolute nightmare. And then for like about 10 years, it was the hugest cultural sensation in the world. I wouldn't have liked to do it. I would like, I mean, that's the thing about it. I was right for me, but but I, but I thought my opinion for me was the opinion that every that was my first real example of going. Ah, oh, yeah. No, it turns out that your opinion isn't the same as everybody else's opinion because people love that. Show. Yeah, I mean, you would. I mean, you'd also have fuck you money right now, where you could just be like, you could just tell people to fuck off. You could be like, ah, whatever, dude. I'm fucking see this shit. I got a gold plated blooming onion in the background. All right. The band had some onstage rules and restrictions. Number one, nobody on stage can hear anything the audience doesn't hear. Number two, no feeling it. Number three, no sunglasses. Number four, no rocking out. Number five, no improvising. Number six, no noodling. 
Number seven, no psyching up the crowd. Number eight, no pretending you're cool. And number nine, no wearing the rock and roll hat, which I don't know what the rock and roll hat is. Is that a fedora? I mean, I I don't know what the rock and roll hat is either. But I mean, I guess it's some sort of slash style. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That sort of hat, right? Is that your rock and roll hat? Yeah, dude, guys in my band, uh, LMNOP, they fucking love fedoras. And I was like, no fedoras, no no dress shirts, uh, untucked with ties, like nothing. None of that shit. How do you feel about uh, noodling? Are you fine with noodling? Or I like noodling because I like the word. I like saying noodling, so I'm like noodle, noodle around. I just, I just, it's one of those words like raspberries that I just fucking love. All right, here we go. Rock and roll hat. Yeah, dude, it's it's fedoras or it's the the fucking Rob Halford, you know, gay uh, sex rock star hat, or it's the cabbie hat that my drummer wears, but he's going bald, so I let him wear it. Yeah, dude, all of these hats, just just terrible. No rock hats. But it feels like a lot of rules about improvising and noodling. And like this, it's really like, the, I feel like you didn't need 10 rules is what I'm saying. I feel like some of the later rules are covered by the earlier no, rules. No, I totally agree. It's basically, you know, don't get full of yourself. Just play the music. Uh, you know, we're not fucking... You know, we're not we're not the I'm trying to think of a band that like pumps up the audience. Like we're not the the chain smokers that are up there like, come on, everybody, let's go. Like they're just they're actually just playing and 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 truth be told, Will, when I saw them live at both of those festivals, they'd never address he never once, I think, spoke to the crowd. It was and I think like you said, probably of why I dug it so much, it just felt like it felt like almost like a Beethoven symphony between each song, these different movements. And that's what I think I think there's a real sense of like in his music where he's just like, No, this is why. No noodling, no mucking about, no revving up the crowd. I've imagined how this is all gonna go and I just want it to go how it's all going to go. We don't need to be doing this other stuff. I've, I've already thought out how this all fits together. Let's not muck around with it. I'm assuming he came up with those 10 rules is what I'm saying. I assume they were collaborated on by the rest of the band. These are James Murphy's 10 rules for the rest of LCD sound system. Do you have any rules or superstitions about performing? Do I have any rules about performing? Um, uh, I, don't, um, I don't think I have anything to like, you know, superstitious or anything like that. I tend to, I like to not wear my day clothes. Like, so I like to get changed into something. I think that's probably my biggest one is like, if I'm doing a show, I don't like to go and do a show in the clothes that I was just wearing that day. Like, I like to be like, you know, Bruce Wayne could fight crime outside the bat suit. Like the bat suit isn't the whole thing. He's still got some pretty cool ninja skills in his late day clothes. But I feel like it's appropriate if you're going to go and fight crime at night that you put on your bat suit. And I think it's a bit like that with stand-up as well. It's like There's a level of like not just professionalism, but it's just it feels like yeah, man, I'm 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 wearing what I'm supposed to be wearing to entertain these people. And it, regardless if it's if it's a suit or it's just like a t-shirt and jeans, you know, that's your wardrobe. And in a sense, you got dressed up to make it special for them. Cuz if you just showed up in your comfy clothes, you know, they'd be like, "All right, what the fuck?" Well, see, and and my on-stage clothes are kind of comfy clothes. Like it's not like I'm wearing like a you know, good suit or anything like that. Like, but they're my show clothes. At least I've got into my show clothes. I feel like I've put on my uniform to go to work. Yeah. No, I my my rule is uh, no T-shirts with any labels or, like, sayings or anything. Like, I, I kind of go by, 
the uh, and I don't even know if we can say them anymore, but the Louis C.K. style of dressing, which is just like black T-shirt, you know, dark pants, just so what I'm wearing does not take away from what I'm saying. For a few weeks before and after the official release of this album, they made it available to stream for free on their MySpace page. Uh, how has social media changed your career? Like, I mean, podcasts are the big one for me. So, you know, the capacity that we have, like, you know, you're in America, I'm in Australia, we can have this, like, conversation. It's amazing. And, you know, in my world, like, you know, I love broadcasting, but in Australia, you know, broadcasting is very split into, like, since I got to do the best job in broadcasting in Australia as my first job, and there's no job that's as good as that Triple J job that you ever get to do again, right? So, like, it's either very commercial or radio or it gets a bit serious. And, you know, my stuff kind of lives, you know, in the space in the middle of that. And then podcasting came along and was just perfect for all the stuff that I wanted to make. Like I am a bit Damon Albarn in my approach to podcasting is like, I have like four different podcasts and they're all about different things and different things that are interesting to me. And none of which could ever be big mainstream radio shows that would fit into anywhere you could do it in Australia. So for me, like Twitter, Facebook, all those sort of things were helpful, but no, podcasting, like the internet, the fact that people can, like, you know, the amount of listeners I have all over the world, like, and you'd know that with this podcast, right? Like you look at the countries that listen to it and there'll be like 80 different countries people are listening to episodes of your show and you just think, how could that have ever happened? How could something that I make in the, you know, the room below my house be this thing that people hear and like all over the world. No, it's it's incredible. It's incredible the reach that that podcasting has because I've never had a huge social media following, nor have I ever really been super into it as well. But the the podcasting, it's like you couldn't have said it better. It's just like I'm seeing the listeners of this show that are reaching out and they're like, I'm in Scandinavia or I'm in Australia or I'm in Scotland and it's just when are you coming here to do stand up? And I'm just like, oh well, now I have a, a small audience that I can. You can't though, because they're not going to let anyone out of America because you guys are riddled with disease. So I'm sorry about that. It's good that you have this audience, but we're not letting you leave. COVID and HPV. Everybody in America has both of those. All right, last fact. Because James hadn't really considered himself to be the main singer in the beginning with the band, he felt so uncomfortable recording and singing live that he would often have to be blackout drunk off of whiskey to make it through a concert. Which I get. Because I used to, when I first started doing stand-up, I drank. And then when I moved to L.A., I did opiates. And uh, it just helped. It just took away all that fear. Um, have, have you ever, has that applied to you or, I mean, cause you said you like to have a whiskey or whatever before you perform, but I, so I, I don't need to drink to perform like, but I like to perform and I like to drink. So yeah, I, I'm definitely not one of those people who's like, I am drinking this alcohol to get me onto stage. I'm like, now that I'm out here enjoying myself, you know what would make this even better? A tasty beverage of some kind. <laughs> and and, I, and also because I love doing it, I've tried it on everything. Well, not everything, everything, but like a good list of things, you know. Ayahuasca? <laughs> Have you done ayahuasca yet? If you, if you could, I would give it a crack, you know, like because like that idea of it would be a difficult transition. <laughs> 
just it'd be a tough trip for everybody else in the TP. <laughs> you're just up the front. You're just like, yeah, you're just like, Jesus, man, right on my punchline, I started vomiting and shitting myself. Jesus, I fucking lost. Shaman, help me. <laughs> yeah, guys, you, you, you guys seeing any interdimensional space beings? They're tree-like, wood-like creatures. What's, with, what's the deal with those wood-like creatures and that indigenous language that you inherently understand? Right. Well, then what? Tell me this. Tell me what's your craziest drunken or drug-fueled experience, not on stage, just in your life? I mean, it just, there's a long list that I'm trying to think of what's a good, you know, appropriate thing to say publicly. Um, I'll, look, I'll tell you, um, uh, so I, I'll tell you a music-related one. It'll um, it, it'd be fun. So... I was at this uh, festival in Australia called the Big Day Out, as I mentioned earlier, and the first uh, gig they would do would be the Gold Coast leg of the Big Day Out. So they would take two weeks and tour around Australia, capital cities, but they'll start at the Gold Coast on a Sunday. And that would be the day where the radio station that I worked for, we would do all our interviews of the bands for the entire tour. We'd play them out over the two weeks, but you'd interview them all on the first day. The bands loved to get it all out of the way on the first day so they could just like party their way around Australia for the rest of it, okay? So it, we would alternate, my friend and I, because we would have to do the radio show the next morning and start at 5 a.m. And this like was a Sunday gig that went until like 10, 30, 11. So we'd have to drive an hour back to the, like where we would do the show. So it was like... One of us would always have to stay completely sober and then the rule would be that the other one, as soon as we were finished our interviews, could go and have a good time and we would alternate year to year, right? So this year was my turn that I could, um, you know, go and have a good time. And the last band we were meant to interview was The Strokes and then they cancelled and then they went on stage. So we were done for the, the day. And so I go, you know, to the bar, like my friend says, okay, well, you can go and have a good time. And I go to the bar and this girl just like immediately comes up to me and like like kisses into my mouth like and like pushes something into my mouth. Now, look, in the retrospect of the fact that this was 15 years ago and if it was the other way around, this would be a terrible story and somebody would be going to prison about like a stranger drugging me. But I, I, I was fine with it, it turns out. It was okay. But I said, what was that? And she said it was ecstasy and acid, right? And she goes, you know, have fun. And I was like, all right, cool, great. I've got no more responsibilities, right? Go off, it kicks in, I'm having the best time, everything's going great. And then suddenly uh, I get this tap on my shoulder and it's my friend and he's gone, hey, the Strokes have decided um, now that they've done their set, they're happy to do the interview. Hi, Julian, nice to meet you. Tell me about... Ah, get that off of me! <laughs> so I'm, we've, I've just watched Metallica during a lightning storm, like on acid and ecstasy. On acid. Yeah. Oh my God. So, Darkness, imprisoning me, all that I see. <laughs> and then, so they've said, yeah, the Strokes are willing to do the interview. They've taken us into the dressing room of a band called The Darkness, a British band called The Darkness. Oh, I love them. I love them. They'd already gone for the day so that, you know, the, the space was free and we do this interview. Anyway, we pack up our stuff. You know, we're in at the radio station the next day. And so I'm, you can imagine what shape I'm in at like five o'clock in the morning, like, you know, the next day, I can't remember this interview we've done with the Strokes. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about us, you know, the idea that we're going to put it to air. So we go out to our equipment because it's all like big bags of like dat tapes and stuff like that back then. And there's like bottles of vodka and bottles of like Jake Daniels and stuff in our bags. And I'm like, 
saying to Adam, I'm like, what? Where, where did all this booze come from? And he goes, oh, don't you remember? And I'm like, no. And he said, we were in the darkness's dressing room and they'd like gone for the day and we were waiting for the strokes. So you just decided we could steal the rest of their rider. So I just like grabbed bottles and chucked in our gear. And so I would have been interviewing the strokes with this like clearly, like there's no way it could have been subtle, like a bag just full of like booze that I jammed into the bag. Now I got my notes in here. Can you hold this handle, the captain? All right, it's just, they're in here somewhere. But you know, the, the funniest thing about it was that the interview was fine. And so I learned no lessons. It was one of those things <laughs> where you just heard it back and he was like, this is, I'm not, this, I'm not sure this would have been any better if I was sober. It's a groundbreaking interview. So we know what we need next time. Ah, well, this was phenomenal, buddy. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking time out to speak with us. Uh, promote away, whatever you got to promote. Um, yes, yeah, so I have four podcasts. They're the easiest things to get into. So if you go to tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com, um, there's an interview one called Philosophy. There's like a comedy. Anyway, you, you can find them all there. There's a website that explains it all. That's the the best fun place for people to start, I think. And then and then you'll do the big tour in what 2022? When the, when there's a vaccine? Yeah, 2022. When there's a vaccine. I think 2022. Uh, I think my next big tour will be 2022. Perfect, man. Uh, I I really hope I get to run into you at the next JFL. Um, and this time you'll be a lot nicer because <laughs> I won't because I'll feel like I know you already now. Now I'll be like, yo, Will. And you'll be like, wait, who are you again? Like, <laughs> Dude, this is great, man. Thank you, brother. My pleasure. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Will Anderson. For all things Will, go to his website, willanderson.com. Join his Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. Join his Facebook page at official Will Anderson and his Twitter at Will underscore Anderson and his Instagram at official Will Anderson. Follow him. He's incredible and support him. Listen to his podcast, Tofop and Willosophy. He is a gem. Uh, Dude, that was so much fun. Now, we just listened to LCD Sound System from 2007. This week, I have fan submitted music by a group that I did a show with that is the shit. It is an electropop dance duo made up of Ben Braden and Nick Sadler, also known as Strange Hotels. And you're listening to their new LCD Sound System inspired single, Changes. Braden and Sadler formed the band in Portland, Oregon in early 2018. They are quickly turning heads up and down the West Coast with their explosive live shows and compelling early recordings. Recording and producing music solely on iPads using a slightly ramshackle process involving several apps working in concert, they found time in Airbnbs and apartment studios on the road to create their first release, Mixtape. The result is a mix of inspired off-the-cuff tones and well-produced and precise pop. The music can be described as a wide-ranging project that includes flavors of dance, R&B, vintage pop, and indie rock. Guys, they are incredible. Their live show at this this thing, I don't even know, concert, speakeasy, whatever the fuck I saw them at, uh, they blew me away. And the second I saw them, I was like, dude, I want to help you. So listen to their music. You can find links to their music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you are in a band and were influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send your song. 500 podcast at gmail.com and make sure you put the album and artist that influence you in the subject line next week is Randy Newman week 
as we go deep into his 1974 album, Good Old Boys. Y'all got homework to do. Stay fleecy. Google Doogle. Ooh, change.